Jesus said that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would know, would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it grieves us to know how they persecuted your son. You sent him to do the great work of redeeming sinners like us. And yet when he came, we hated him. We refused to hear his words. We refused to come under his mercy and grace. And instead, Lord, we persecuted him and we murdered him. I ask, Father, that you would help us to see that if we are going to follow your son, that we too will be persecuted. And that if there's no persecution in our life, then we must ask ourselves whether or not we're truly following your son, Jesus Christ. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would help us to hear this passage clearly. And then by the Holy Spirit, take it and apply it to our lives. We don't want to exercise religion this morning. We want to engage in the power of the gospel of grace and the transformation that takes place for all who repent and believe and do follow your son. So I ask you to be gracious with us this morning here at Camden. Be gracious with all true churches here in the South Bay and all of your churches throughout the world. Let your name be magnified. Let your son be lifted up and let the Holy Spirit move in a mighty way this morning that we, your people, might live as your people. Give us the grace and the courage to do that. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. You are a bold people to sing a song like that. I hope that you listen closely and read the lyrics as you're singing, because those are amazing statements to make. Um, I pray that they are true, and if they're not, I pray that we strive for that. I pray that we desire for the Holy Spirit to give us the desire to pursue Christ and run this race in such a way that even when we're persecuted, Even when things get really difficult for us, we know that Christ is with us and we have our guarantee with him in heaven. Most of our exposure in the West to religious persecution is what we read about or what we see. We read about in history books or we see on the evening news. And I I would argue that for most Christians, hearing this passage read, you might have difficulties applying it to yourselves finding immediate application to you actually being persecuted in how you live your life. But it would be foolish for us to hear this warning that Christ made to his disciples and indeed the church 2,000 years ago and somehow think that, that this warning and this persecution is going to magically pass us by. I think we'd be foolish to do that. 
Up to this point in time in our Lord's farewell discourse, his words have been primarily words of encouragement, expressions of love, and instructions. And yet when we get to the passage that I just read to you, verses 18 to 25 in John 15, he, be- he gives them a warning, and it's a sober warning. And he's warning his disciples, and he's warning the church that the road ahead is going to be difficult. The road to glory, to be with Christ forever, is a road of persecution. And it's this road that I want to look at this morning. What does it mean to live a life in Christ here in this fallen world? What does it mean that we're going to be persecuted for His name's sake? For those of you who say, and I don't think this warning applies to us, I pray that you'll listen closely because it does and it needs to. It's not only relevant for us today, but I would argue in these upcoming months and years even more so than now. So let's look at this passage. I want to ask three questions, and they're three basic questions. And by God's grace, hear what the Scriptures have to say to us. One, are our expectations of the Christian life biblical? I mean, do we have right expectations of what it means to be a Christian? First question. Number two, why should we expect to be persecuted? And number three, what does it mean if we're not? All right, let's look at the first point. Do we have a right expectation of what it means to live a Christian life here in this fallen world? Are our expectations biblical expectations? One of the great causes that many of you have when you get angry or you find yourself frustrated, oftentimes it's an expectation that you had that wasn't met, right? And it it brings frustration, sometimes it brings anger. If I expected, for example, our politicians to pass laws that were only in accordance with the laws of God, and then they did not, I would be upset. Okay, you would say to me, you're a fool for expecting that, and you would be right. If I expect my neighbors to turn down their music at midnight on a Saturday night when I want to get a good night's sleep so I can wake up early and pray and then preach, and they do not, I get upset. Right? So when our expectations are off, then we, we have a tendency to get angry, frustrated. Um, we lose our temper sometimes. Having realistic expectations will help temper those moments when we are disappointed for things not going the way we expect them to go. But even more importantly, if we have right expectations according to the Word of God, we can make wise decisions when persecution comes, when it's really hard, and we can live a life that is more pleasing to our Lord, more faithful to Christ. So our disciples, their expectations have already been blown. Right? I mean, they expected that this was going to be the grand entry. Christ was going to assume the throne. They were going to be seated with him. They were going to reign in his court. And that's already been dispelled, and they get that now. We're at that point in the farewell discourse when the plan that they had set forth in their minds is not going as they so desired. Judas had already gone to the religious authorities. Jesus is only hours away from being arrested and persecuted and then put to death. And there we have the remaining 11. And Jesus is saying to them, giving them this warning, and they're going to experience firsthand what it means to be hated by the world. Look again with me at verse 18. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Two words that I hope, as I read that, jumped out. World and hatred. That word world there 
in the Greek, it's cosmos. Um, and the word world in the Bible is used in lots of different ways, depending upon the context. In the context of this passage, this world that Jesus is talking about is a, the world of evil. It is the systematic world of evil that compromises the war that is taking place between good and evil. And the word hatred, it's, it's, in the Greek, it's much stronger. better word in the, in the English would be to loathe or to detest. And what we see here is that the world is going to loathe and detest all those who follow Jesus Christ. So Satan, demons, and all the unsaved make up the cosmos that Jesus is talking about here that have a hatred for God the Father, God the Son, and God's church, and certainly the gospel message. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In fact, this warning that he's giving is nothing new to the true believers. They know the world has hated them ever since the prophecy was made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember the very beginning, after the fall, we, we enter into Genesis 3, and God said to Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between Satan and the woman and between Satan's offspring and her offspring. In other words, you're going to have, for the rest of humanity, for the rest of human history, you're going to have good versus evil. Those that are of Satan, Satan, demons, and all the unsaved, and those who have been born again by the power of Christ. And there's going to be a battle. There's going to be a war. And this world system of evil, according to the Bible, will dominate every worldly institution that is not of God. Governments, legislation, politics, industry, media, social structures, family structures, finances... We already looked, Jesus said in John chapter 12 and John chapter 14, who is the ruler of this world? It's Satan. It's Satan. And that means that there's a unified attack against God, against his son Jesus Christ, and against his church, the bride. It's unified. In fact, Jesus says the world, not the worlds. There's a one systematic system of evil that is coming against God and his church. And so we see this war taking place. If you were listening closely to the lyrics being sung, you notice that it was about this battle between good and evil. Look at verse 20 again. Jesus said, Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He had already taught them this, so this is not a new teaching. He's reminding them because things are going to get really difficult for them in a matter of hours. They're going to experience the exact persecution that he was talking about. This world in which they lived was no longer going to be a comfortable place. Hatred, animosity, tension, rebellion is what they would experience in the world. In fact, the fulfillment of this prophecy, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and then the prophecy Christ makes here in the farewell discourse, happened quickly after our Lord's ascension. If you remember after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and then the disciples started speaking boldly through the Spirit of Christ, what happened to them? They were arrested, they were persecuted. The Bible tells us that all but John... According to church history, they lost their lives in, uh, as martyrs. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred. We know that. By the time we get to Acts chapter 8, the entire church in Jerusalem and throughout Ju Judea was persecuted by the Jews. And so it wasn't just the apostles. It was that early church that saw the persecution from the world. The first martyr, the first apostle that was martyred was James, John's older brother. And then we know that even the Apostle Paul, who started out on the wrong side, remember he started out as the great persecutor of the church when he was saved by God's grace, he spent his entire ministry being hated and persecuted by the Jews and the Gentiles. In fact, he writes this in 2 Corinthians 11, 
He says, I have been imprisoned, flogged severely, and exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. The Apostle Paul knew persecution. Rome quickly picked up the torch, and we know that as as Christians started to grow throughout the empire, as the church started to grow, they too were hated. Christians were accused of treason. They were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of trying to subvert the economic and religious institutions. They refused to engage in idolatry, so they would not buy the sacrifices or engage in the pagan worship. In fact, because they only worshiped the one true living God and not the multiple gods, the multiple pagan gods, they were actually accused of being atheists because they refused to bow down and offer the sacrifices. As a result, they were ostracized in the culture. They were arrested. They too were tortured. We're talking about the church now, not just the apostles. Many of them were beaten. Many of them were thrown to wild animals. Many of them were crucified. And most of you know the horrific story of how Nero would actually use them as human torches to illuminate his gardens at night. John MacArthur writes this. He says, By the second century, Pliny, the Roman governor of Bithynia, lamented in a letter that he wrote to Trajan, the emperor, that the spread of Christianity had caused pagan temples to be deserted and the sales of sacrificial animals to drop significantly. Christians were then blamed for everything, right? No one's going to the pagan worship and offering the pagan sacrifices, and so the Christians were blamed for plagues, famines, natural disasters, including the burning of Rome. And for these and more reasons, Christians became hated in the Roman Empire. And so this became the norm for all of human history, even into the 20th and 21st century. In fact, the 20th century was the bloodiest century for Christians in all of human history. From 1889 to 1900, 2,000 Christians were systematically killed during the Boxer Rebellion in China. 700,000 were killed under the communist regime from 1950 to 1980. One million killed by Adolf Hitler and the Nazi machine. Fifteen million Christians under the reign of the Soviet Union from from 1917 to 1950. 300,000 killed by Idi Amin in Uganda, 1971 to 1979. And the list goes on and on and on. Todd Johnson, who writes for the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, estimates that as many as 100,000 Christians are martyred each year. with over 100 million Christians being severely persecuted around the world each year right now. And according to Christian History Magazine, it is estimated that over 70 million Christians, 70 million Christians have given their life as martyrs for the faith since the days of Christ. And many argue that that is a a conservative estimate, that the number actually is much higher. In other words, it's not difficult to see this prophecy of our Lord's being fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in human history. It is being fulfilled right now. ISIS has taken Iraq and Syria, and they have already executed thousands of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and thousands more have been cast out and are currently living in refugee camps. One 
article rightly said, the plight of Christian execution and refugees is largely being ignored by the Western world. Even in spite of major Christian leaders arguing that what is taking place is horrific. So why? Why would that be the case? Why would the world not be telling us and why would we not be concerned about these things? Because the world, as we already defined, and that includes the Western world, hates God the Father, hates God the Son, and hates His church. And so we're fools to think that somehow the media in the West is going to be bringing these things to our attention and that we'll be compelled by them to pray. None of this should surprise us. The passage teaches us there'll be persecution. History has taught us that there'll be persecution. Verse 18 again, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we should not be surprised that the church has always been persecuted, is being severely persecuted, and will be until Christ comes. That should not surprise us. If we're surprised by that, we either don't know our Bible or we don't know history. What should surprise us, and I hope that we can hear this in the last point as well, what should surprise us is the degree to which we are not persecuted here, now, in the Western world. Look again at verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When Jesus Christ came to you and he plucked you out of the darkness and he brought you into the kingdom of light, you became an abomination to the world. Proverbs 29, 27 tells us the one whose way is righteous is an abomination to the wicked. In other words, you became a traitor. You became a traitor to the world system. Right? We have two camps. We have darkness and we have light. We have the realm that is operated and overseen by Satan and the demons and all the unsaved, and you have those who are pursuing Christ and loving God. And that means that if there is no hatred, if there's no struggle, if there's no tension between you and the world, listen closely, saints, there is a problem with your profession of faith. Even here, in this semi-peaceful West. Jesus said, I chose you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. Present tense, hates you. And that means if the world still loves you, and if you are still comfortable being in this place, no tension in your family with relatives who reject Christ. No tension. No tension at Christmas, no tension at Thanksgiving. No hostility at the workplace because of your faith, because of you standing up for righteousness. No struggle with the laws that are passed that so violently offend God and His laws. No tension between you and your unsafe friends who not only reject Christ but hate Christ. No tension. No hostility and no struggles with the injustice that is taking place around the world. If these things are not, there's no tension in your life over these things, then there's a real issue with your knowing Christ. It can only mean two things. That you're still of the world, Hence, no tension and no hatred for the world or the world for you, and that means that you're unsaved. Or, you know Christ, but your faith is so weak and so shallow that you become like that tasteless salt that Christ talked about. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he said, you're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Look at verse 19 again. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Let me ask you, are you still loved by the world? Are you still loved by the world? 
do you still love the things of this world? Paul said in Colossians 1.13 that Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Your citizenship, if you are in Christ, is not of this world. Your citizenship is in that of a kingdom. And that king is Christ. You no longer belong to Satan. You no longer belong to his schemes or his plans or his hatred for God, for Christ, or for his church. And therefore, as a child of light, If you indeed are a child of light, you should expect to be persecuted. And not just a little, you should expect severe persecution. Rather than thinking that we live in an historical anomaly, which I've heard taught, or that somehow persecution has vanished, or praising God for the relative peace that we have, I think it'd be wiser for us to reconsider our fidelity to Christ, and ask ourselves personally, why am I not being persecuted for my faith? Why is our church not being persecuted for our faith? We know a few things. Satan has not changed. The demons have not changed. Unregenerate hearts have not changed. The cosmos, this world system of evil that is rebelling against God and his son, have not changed. That means something. That means that we have changed. It means we're quieter. Listen, saints, we're quieter than we should be. We're more complacent than we should be. We're more tolerant of evil than we should be. We are putting a higher priority on comfort rather than righteousness, on pleasure and relative peace instead of truth and the gospel of grace, which brings real peace. Now, some will hear this and they will protest and they say, you know what, that's not fair, Pastor. In this cultural moment, there isn't the type of persecution that we saw in the time of Christ. This is a form of, you know, the the Pax Romana, the peace that permeated in the time of Christ that the gospel might go out. You say, well, this is the Pax United States and we have this relative peace. If you say to yourself, we have no reason to expect persecution, then I want to look again at the passage and our second point. Why should we expect to be persecuted? Why? Many Christians in the Western church think this. If I behave myself, keep my nose out of other people's business, if I work hard and I pay my taxes and I be a good citizen, then life should go smoothly. I mean, we still have this ahistorical perspective that people will say, well, I'm a Christian and I live in a Christian nation and God said that if I, if I do what I'm supposed to do, then my life will go smoothly. Life will go easy. What's wrong with those statements? Well, first and foremost, we don't live in a Christian nation. And I I hate to to burst an historical bubble hill, but I would argue that we never have lived in a Christian nation. We've certainly been influenced by Christians, and the population was dominated by Christians, but we must remember something. Governments, political structures, civil authorities are under the realm and power of Satan. God is sovereign over all these things, but the United States was never a theocracy. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says clearly, the God of this world is Satan. Jürgen Moltmann, a 20th century German theologian, was right when he said, Jesus Christ, listen, Jesus Christ has always been an enemy of the state regardless of what that state may be. He's always been an enemy of the state. And he must be because states belong to the world system. We belong to the kingdom. And the church belongs to Christ. But more importantly, Jesus Christ never ever said that if you follow me, that life will go easy. He never promised comfort. 
here in this, on this side. In fact, just the opposite. He said, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. Do you remember in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 14, when he was telling his disciples, you must count the costs. If you're going to follow me, you've got to count the costs. What must you give up? He said this, Luke 14, 33, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Your whole life must be given up to follow Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 21. He said, all these things, all what things? The arrest, the beatings, the torture, the excommunication, the murder that they would face. Jesus said, all these things they, the world, will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And so Jesus explains to them because they want to know, why are we going to be persecuted? He says, you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake. Remember John 3? We went over this. Jesus said, John said, and this is the judgment. Christ is speaking now. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And then Jesus said, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Christ, the light, he comes into the world. He comes into the darkness, and because people love the darkness, they flee to it. They flee from Christ. And then he said in John 7, 7, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. He came speaking the truth. The world would not receive him as a prophet, a priest, or a king. The world, because of the love of evil in the human heart, refused to see him as the one who brought truth and salvation. He is the perfectly righteous one. He is pure light. He is just And he spoke truth, and because he spoke truth, they hated him for it. He came for the purpose of saving their souls, to take them out of the darkness and bring them into the light and offer them hope and salvation, not being slaves to the master of sin, but being set free in salvation by grace. But they loved their sin more. The Bible says they loved their sin more than they wanted to know God or love God, and therefore they hated him. And Jesus said, they hate my father also. What name is there that you can bring up at work or at school or with your neighbors? What name in a social gathering, even a gathering with your family of mixed company, saved and unsaved, what name brings greater hostility than that of Jesus Christ? There's no other name. You bring that name out and people are going to be reviled by it or they're going to rejoice over it. There's no middle ground for the name of Christ. And yet, Jesus tells us that we're going to be persecuted for his name. And the Bible says that we're supposed to do everything in his name. Our whole life is supposed to be defined by his name. We're supposed to believe in his name, trust in his name, pray in his name, confess our sins in his name. We're supposed to work in his name. We're supposed to serve in his name. We're supposed to gather on Sunday morning and worship God in the name of Christ. And this passage tells us we're supposed to suffer in his name. And so Jesus is saying this. If you live like this, if your whole life is done in my name for my glory, out of your love for me and my love for you, you live like this in loving obedience, you renounce everything. As Christ commands us in Luke 14, you renounce everything. You say, I'm going to die to myself, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to live for Christ. That profession of faith that you made at your baptism, when you went into those waters and you said, I am dying with Christ and I'm going to rise with him and I'm going to live, you follow Christ like this and Christ, said the wor- Christ says the world will hate you, loathe you, despise you, and they will persecute you. 
In fact, he promises you that. The world hates us because it hated Christ. And the world hated Christ because they didn't know the one that sent him. Look again at verse 21. Jesus said, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Who sent Christ? The Father sent Christ. And here we have, I mean, we're at the heart of the problem. This is the problem. The world hates God because they do not know God. They do not want to know God. The world hates Christ because they don't know God the Father. And the world hates us because they don't know God the Father. He's not, by the way, Jesus is not excusing their hatred. In fact, he's condemning it in the highest degree. We're talking about the one true living God, the creator of all that is seen and unseen, the glorious, majestic, most powerful, all-loving, all-glorious God of creation. The world does not know. The world will not know. They remain willfully ignorant. Instead of knowing God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, listen to this, they suppress the truth about God in their own unrighteousness, in their own evil, in their own unrighteousness. They say, we will not know, we will not believe, we will not trust, and we will not see. He continues in verse 21 of Romans 1, he says, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Instead, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the truth, truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. God the Father sent Jesus Christ to come into this world of darkness that did not know Him, to make Him known. He sent Christ to come and die for people like us, people that are so dead in our sins and so lost in our unrighteousness that we actually reject the glorious nature of who God is. He sent Christ to ascend the cross and pay for a punishment that we did not want to pay for so that we didn't have to spend an eternity in hell but could be redeemed and saved and brought into glory with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit forever. It's the whole reason why Christ came. But the world refused to know Him. It did not, it does not, and it will not recognize Him as God. It will not recognize the Father. And if the world will not recognize the Father, they won't recognize the one the Father sent, and that is Christ. And if they will not recognize the one the Father sent, Jesus Christ, listen, they're not going to recognize you. They're not going to recognize you as children of God. They're not going to see you as sons and daughters of a king. They're not going to think of you as people who have been redeemed out of the darkness and brought into the light. Look at verse 22 again. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Jesus makes it so clear. He says, I came and I spoke truth to them. And they refused to hear and they hate me and they hate my father. And then he said, and I came and I did miracles amongst them that no other man could do, but they would not believe the miracles. And because they will not believe the miracles, they hate me and they hate my father. They refuse to believe. And this is a willful, conscious rebellion against the living God. That's why Paul says, although they knew him, they would not know him. They know he's real. They know he's all-powerful. They know he's just. Creation testifies to this, but they will not accept his grace. They will not accept his son. 
willful, conscientious rejection. So when Jesus says they are guilty of this sin, he's saying they're guilty of the unforgivable sin. And it is unforgivable. You say, well, what sin can I commit that God cannot cover? You, God cannot forgive you for rejecting Christ. That is the way of salvation. If you refuse to believe the Father and believe the one the Father sent, Jesus Christ, if you refuse to put your faith in Him, you cannot be saved. One commentator said to it like this, he said, total rejection in the face of total revelation is unforgivable since there's nothing left for God to show. What else can God do? He sent Christ in the flesh. He sent Him to earth to live a perfect life that we cannot live and to die a sinner's death that we don't want to die to redeem us. Christ came speaking truth and he came doing glorious miracles and they refused to believe. What else can God do? There's nothing else he can do. The consummate revelation is rejected and therefore those who reject must perish. And all of this we see in verses 24 and 25. The word that was written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. This is amazing. Psalm 35, 19. Psalm 69, verse 4. This was prophesied to centuries before it took place. In their law, and it's interesting, he says, in your law, in their law, it is written that they will hate Christ without reason. And so their own law that they supposedly cherished and lived by condemned them because when the Christ came, they condemned him. And it had to be without cause. No more lovely man has ever lived. No more lovely man. No more gracious man. No man more humble than Christ. No man more caring and forgiving than Christ. No man more patient than Jesus when he walked the face of this earth. There's been no other man like this man, so beautiful, so kind, so generous, so willing to give up everything to save sinners. No man, truly without cause. In fact, we can say that to hate Christ is the height of insanity and reveals the height and depth of our own depravity. To hate Christ, it's unfathomable. But if the world can hate someone as lovely as Christ, then the world certainly can hate and will hate sinners like us saved by grace. If they're going to hate Christ, the world is going to hate his church. We're nowhere near as lovely. One day, one day we will be in his presence made as he is. So if the right expectation of the Christian life is persecution, and that is a right biblical expectation, if you're following Christ, you will be persecuted. And if this persecution is a result of the world, the system, the cosmos, hating God the Father and hating God the Son, if we have those two in place, then we have to get to our last point and ask this consummate question, what does it mean for us in the Western world, in the Western church, if there is so little persecution? What does that mean for us? I mean, what do we do with this? Point number three, what does it mean if we are not persecuted? If we know why they hated Christ and why they hated the Father, and now we know why they hate us, we should go back to the earlier question. If I'm not persecuted, why am I not persecuted if I profess Christ? That's a good question to ask. If we are a church in Christ and we are not persecuted, how is that possible? I mean, what has taken place in human history that would allow us this 
moment of protection? The simple answer is this, and I don't know that many of us will like to hear it, but I pray that you have ears to hear. We are not persecuted because we're not living lives in the name of Christ. Jesus said again, you will be persecuted on account of my name. You will be. It's not, a po- it's not maybe, little. You will be persecuted on account of my name. If there is no persecution, then there's no manifestation of his name in your life. It's that simple. It means that we are evading persecution. We are working hard to try not to be persecuted. It means that when we leave our homes, we leave his name behind. We don't take his name to work, and we don't take his name to school. We don't take his name to social gatherings or to family gatherings where the unsaved are there. We leave his name at home, and we just kind of blend in. We become chameleons, and we, we look like the world, and we talk like the world, and we act like the world, and Christ has not come to bear in those dialogues. If you do that, there's a good chance you will not be persecuted because you will be unrecognizable from the world. If we do not open our mouths and testify with our lives of our loving allegiance and submission in total to Jesus Christ, you will not be persecuted. Life will be easy here. Jesus was persecuted because of the word that he brought to the world. Look again at verse 22. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. What did he do? He came and he exposed the holiness of God and the darkness of the human heart and the need to repent and believe. He called a spade a spade. He said, God is holy, you are not, and there is condemnation in hell if you don't repent and believe and follow me. So he spoke the truth. The Word of God calls us to the exact same work. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said in his parting words in this gospel account, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Take my words and share it with the world. The Apostle Paul gives us even a better detailed understanding of this in 2 Corinthians 4, 2. He said, we do not, he's talking about the church, Believers, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, Paul is saying, and Christ is saying, if you speak the truth plainly in a world that hates God, you will bring truth to bear on their consciousness. Because we know that the truth of God, the word of God, is upon every human heart, saved and unsaved. We know. We know there's a God. We know that God is holy. We know that we're sinners. And we know we can't save ourselves. We know all these things. And so when we speak the truth plainly, we become the the consciousness of the world. Let me ask you this, saints. We're going to get as practical as we can get here. You ready? Are you forthright in calling good, good, and evil, evil? It's a yes or no. The Bible says it's a wicked thing to call good, evil, and evil, good. Do you say that is good and that is evil according to the character and nature of God as revealed to me in the Bible? 
Are you faithful with your mouth to talk about adultery and homosexuality and same-sex marriages as abominations? That's what the Bible says. Do you denounce abortion as murder, transgender laws as a perversion of God's created design? Do you have a hatred for greed, for racism, for the oppression of the poor and the marginalized? And do you say that these things are evil, not just sociological problems or economic mishaps, but evil? Do you identify pride in your own life and lying in your own life and self-centeredness for what they really are, sins apart from Christ deserving of hell? I'll go one step further. Do you make the right claims about the false religions and the false religious leaders? Do you say to people that when the Pope speaks, he speaks as an antichrist because he is? Do you tell people that Muhammad was indeed a false prophet, that Buddha worshipped a pagan god, that the Dalai Lama is an idolatrous god-hater? Do you say these things? Do you love your family rightly? The unsaved in your family, do they know that you speak truth, calling good, good, and evil, evil? Parents, do you warn your children rightly? When you see them taking a path they ought not take, when you see them heading in a direction they should not head, do you speak to them or do you remain silent to keep peace in the family? We see it at work, people trying to keep peace, we see it in school, but in the home, Are you faithful to speak the truth to your children, parents to your children, parents to your grandchildren, children to your parents, brothers and sisters, one to another? Or are we so afraid of stepping on toes and breaking the peace that we forsake righteousness and we forsake truth? The church has become silent today. We are a quiet people. The world, and you all know this, is becoming more and more aggressive Why? Where's the enemy? Where's the battle? Where's the word of truth? Where are the holy lives that are contesting the world? I'm contesting it. Do you know right now that there is a bill pending in the California State Legislature that if passed will prohibit religious education at a higher level, graduate and undergraduate? That means all Christian schools of higher education will be put out of business in the state of California. That means our seminary, Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, gone. Biola, gone. Azusa, gone. Cal Baptist, gone. Did you know that? In the House right now, California State Legislature. The bill would make it illegal to require students, teachers, staff, and even the president of the college to affirm a statement of faith. Illegal. It would be a discrimination. Holly Shear, writing for the Federalist, said this, it would make it almost impossible to require students to attend chapel services or keep bathrooms and dormitories distinct according to gender or require students to complete theology classes, teach religious ideas and regular coursework, hold corporate prayer at events such as graduation, and so on. In other words, she concludes, it threatens, to every, it threatens every practice that makes religious institutions distinct from secular institutions. Are you aware of that? Right now, most of us don't. We're not aware of it and we're not saying anything about it. 
I would love the law of God is written upon every human heart, man, woman, and child, saved and unsaved. When we proclaim the truth, Paul said clearly that we either accuse them or it excuses them. And that will, that's what will take place on the day of judgment. When we bring truth, when we become what we're supposed to be, the consciousness of the world and taking every single thought captive. And when we do, if you do that, if you speak the truth in love, now listen, we're not supposed to be this horrible gong, in love, in humility, in grace, but speak the truth. Don't sidestep, don't sugarcoat. Speak plainly and lovingly, but speak the truth. And if you do, and if we do as a church, Jesus says you'll be persecuted. And if you're not speaking the truth in these manners to your family members, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, if you're not calling evil, evil, when you see it, then there won't be persecution. And it has nothing to do with the, with the, the timing in which we live. It has everything to do with our lack of faith in Christ. Jesus also said that he was persecuted because of the works. Look at verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Right, so he spoke the word of truth. He did the works that testified to his name, and they rejected that. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's all over Scripture. Will be, will be, will be persecuted if we live holy lives. Because when you abstain from evil, when you pull back, I mean, the world, you're either for the world or you're against the world. If you're not participating, you're against it. You're working against that system. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.11, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The early church got this as they pulled back and they said, we're not going to participate in the pagan worship. We're not going to participate in the idolatry. We're not going to participate in the sexual immorality. They were persecuted for it. They were set apart. If we do what Paul tells us in Philippians 2.15, to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, and we shine as light in the world, then the darkness will become hostile to the light, and that means it'll become hostile to you and to me and his church. Guilt comes. By God's grace, conviction will come. But a response to that is persecution. It is hatred. Sixteen years ago, when Lori and I decided to homeschool our children. It was not a popular decision. There was criticism from our family, criticism from our neighbors, even some criticism from some of the people in the church. Now, some of the criticism was a result of simple ignorance. I understand that. But many, I know, many were convicted because when they'd ask us why and we'd explain to them some of the things taking place academically and certainly socially in the schools that we could no longer condone, that we as parents could not have our children being exposed to teachings on transgender education or, or homosexual marriage. When we said no to these things, the conviction on their part was, well, maybe we should do the same. But when they did not, instead of just letting us go our way, there was criticism and there was persecution. 
Jesus did the works of the Father, and they killed him for it. If you do the works of Christ, you will be persecuted, and they may try to kill you for it too. If there's no persecution at all, then there's no works of Christ in your life. Jesus spoke, and they persecuted him. Jesus worked, and they persecuted him. Jesus did not live like the world lived, and they persecuted him. Look at verse 19 one more time. If you were of the world, the world would still, the world would love you as its own. When we lack a right separation from the world, when we commingle, when you go to work or to school or to family gatherings or social gatherings and you look the same as the world, there'd be no reason to expect persecution. You're not identifiable as someone that is set apart, as someone that is abstaining, as someone who's not part of the world system anymore can't be known. When we participate in evil, we not only bring shame to God's name, but you're condoning the behavior of those that are caught in that system. If they know that you're a believer and they see you engaging in what the world loves and the things that God hates, all they're doing is saying, oh, well, you know, it must be all right. It must be okay. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And this must be our mindset. My beloved, we must have a mindset that we are no longer of this world in it to bring light, to bring truth, to bring glory to God, but we're not of it. You're a new creature. You've been born again in Christ. Your citizenship is in a kingdom. It's not in the United States. It's not in the world system. It's in the kingdom of Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is, present tense, a new creation. The old has passed away. That's the world. That's the evil system. That's the heart you used to have. It's gone. And then he says, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. My beloved, how can we call people to be reconciled if we look just like them? How can we call people out of the darkness if we're still in the darkness? How can we speak truth if we're still living lies? And how can we do right works of righteousness if we're still living unholy lives? Paul said in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He said, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. My beloved, Jesus Christ was persecuted for your sake. He was crucified for your sake so that we didn't have to stay stuck in this world system of evil and have our end be one of judgment and condemnation. But he was ultimately persecuted and he was ultimately put to death, suffering the very wrath of God, hell itself, so that we might be set free. So whatever persecution we experience, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to what Christ went through to save us. Uh, I'll close. The goal is not to be persecuted. 
I don't want you running out of here thinking, i got to get persecuted somehow. <laughs> because if I get persecuted, then that means I know Christ. That's not the goal. That's not why he's teaching this. You know the chief end and aim of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief aim. That's why we live. But if you live to glorify God, listen. If you live the life that God has called and equipped you to live, speaking the truth boldly but in love, sharing the gospel with the lost, imploring people as ambassadors of Christ to be reconciled to God, if you do that, if you pursue holiness in all things and do what we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.22 to abstain from every form of evil, you walk that life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You strive for righteousness, you strive for holiness, and you abstain from the wickedness of the world. You are truly set apart. If you do these things for the glory of God, not to be persecuted, but to honor Him and to love Him, then you will be persecuted. Yes, even here in the Western world, and yes, here in Silicon Valley, yes, here in the South Bay, in this supposedly tolerant place, if you want to see how tolerant people really are, profess Christ. If you want to see how tolerant people really are, do works of righteousness. If you want to see how tolerant this place is, abstain from it. Because if you do, persecution will come. And what a glorious thing. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. How glorious is that? That we be persecuted and in that persecution bring glory to God. Many of us do not do this because we're afraid. We're just afraid. We, we want comfort. We want peace. We want quiet. We want to be left alone. If you spend a lot of time hiding in your house, you won't be persecuted. If the thought frightens you, I want to encourage you. I believe that it was fearful to every saint throughout the history of the church and those who suffered some of the most imaginable horrors in the name of Christ. The counsel they received from God is the same counsel I want to give to you and I want this to resonate today, forever. Hebrews 12, 2, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Christ, who is victorious for you in your place. Look to Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you to come and to join him. And then we're told in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, such persecution against himself. We're told to consider him so that you what? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, weak of heart, lack of courage, so you won't be afraid. My beloved, look to the one the world hated and the world hates and love him instead. Love him for who he is. Love him for what he has done. You increase your love for Christ and you will increase your courage. And as your courage grows, 
your word of truth, your righteousness in this life, your abstaining from evil, your good works, they will multiply and persecution will come and you will say what we had a chance to sing, let it come. Let the persecution come because my love for Christ supersedes it all. Following Christ in this life means that you will be, of all people, the most hated and the most loved. You will be, of all people, the most blessed and the most reviled at the exact same time. But in the end, if you stay with Christ, if you follow Christ, you will see that it is this life of loving obedience that brings persecution that is, in fact, the best life to live. There's no better life than to follow Christ regardless of the persecution that may come. Do you believe that? All right. I'm going to pray. Pastor Kurt's going to come up and we're going to have a chance to take the bread that represents the broken body of Christ and the juice that represents his blood. This is the magnitude of the persecution that was poured poured out on Christ. He was literally broken body and blood for us. This persecution you do not have to receive if you know Him as Lord and Savior. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we must begin by asking You to forgive us. For we live in a time and place when it's easy to blend. We live in a time when there's still this residual acceptance of the title Christian. I pray, Father, that we would not take for granted this time of semi-peace, but we would see that the world system and evil has not slowed down. It is increasing. I pray that you would show us, Father, if there is no persecution in our life, it's not because of our historical moment. It is because of our lack of faithfulness. It is the fact that we are not speaking the truth and we are not doing the works of Christ. We're not living in his name. Show us that. Show us that and cause us to repent over it immediately. And then by your grace, give us courage to speak the truth, to share the gospel, to live holy lives, Lord, to set ourselves apart by your grace and mercy, to be the very people that you have called us to be, the bride of Christ, the glorious bride of your Son. Father, I ask that you would bless Camden in this way. We so desperately need to hear this. Bless your churches, your true churches here in the South Bay. Let us not be fooled. Let us not be uh, complacent or quiet. Let us not be lulled to sleep. But instead, Lord, make us sober. Open our mouths. Convict our hearts and set our feet on fire for Christ. I pray you would do that, Lord, for your glory, for your magnificence that your name would be known here in this church, in our lives, in our homes, and throughout the world. Father, do that great work, I pray, that Christ's name might be lifted up. In his name I pray, amen.